0: hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have your Bible, there should be one around you. I hope you'll grab it and open it up and follow along as we go. We've had about a four-week break from our walk through the gospel of Mark, and we are back. And before we go back to eighty thirty-three 33 or so, which is where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, let's just go a little bit back to 1995. I know for some of you, you had lived a lot of life before 1995. There are some of you who hadn't lived any life before 1995. I had lived 13 years. I was 13 years old in 1995, and I can remember sitting on the floor in my room in front of the radio with a cassette ready to go, so when that song came on, I could hit record to record that song so I could hear it again later. Some of you don't know any idea what that's like. I proudly pay my Spotify membership now so I don't have to do things like that, but I I wanted that song. And I think most of us have songs that came to us at just the right point of our lives that made a unique impact. And for a lot of people who are around my age and qualify or grew up in the church, there was a song that we played and rewound and replayed over and over. Here's the refrain. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no denying the truth. The sky's in the truth. Some of you roll your eyes because it didn't hit you the same way it hit me. It was cheesy, whatever. For a 13-year-old, it came to me at just the right time. Became a bit of an anthem. Some of you have never heard the song, that's okay. I grew up in a home that loved and valued Jesus, yet at 13, I was to the point where I was beginning to realize, although I had heard it before this, I was beginning to realize more than ever up to that point that there were others who had different opinions about Jesus than the people in my home or in my church. And I realized at about that age that I was going to have to make a decision: will I be public about my relationship with Christ? Is following Jesus unashamedly worth whatever backlash may come? I didn't know what that backlash would look like, but I had heard and perceived that it might be out there, and the question is, how public did I want to be about my love for Christ? These are questions I was asking, and then I heard the blessed tenor notes of DC Talk, Singing, I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguise in the truth. And that resonated with me. I wanted to live with that that kind of boldness and that unashamed love for Christ. And the reality is, it's really easy to stand in your bedroom at 13 and sing those things really loud. Right? I don't care. And the only people hearing me are my parents. Right? who I don't think loved the song. But what I've recognized is that it takes a lot more than a a bold anthem on repeat to create in us the perseverance needed to live that way day in and day out. And I believe now more than ever, I think the Bible tells us that the key to living that way unashamedly in full allegiance to Christ, not caring if we're called a Jesus. That comes from recognizing truly who he is, seeing him in all his beauty and all his glory. And when we see that, it's really no effort at all. It comes naturally. My hope is, when we come together on Sunday mornings and open his word, that God would use me and whatever abilities he's given me, to, to try to open it up so we can see just a glimpse of that glory. Because I believe if we do, and as you read your Bible, as we see him, we can live this way. We're back to the Gospel of Mark, and once again, we have a chance to consider the work of Christ, to consider his worth, and to ask the question, is he truly worthy of all our devotion? Not just Sunday mornings from 10 to eleven fifteen. Is he worthy of our unhindered, unapologetic allegiance every day? When we're in public, when we're in private, wherever we go. Beyond that, if we say, yes, I'm all in, he's worthy, I'll give him all. What does that even look like? We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we go to Mark 14. It has been about a month since we've been away, so let me catch you back up to where we are in the gospel. Starting back in chapter 11, Mark began walking us through that final week before Jesus died on the cross. So Mark chapter 11 begins with the entrance into Jerusalem. This was Sunday. Second half of chapter 11, most of chapter 12, we're talking Tuesday. Chapter 13, remember we spent a few weeks there. This was Jesus' teaching about things to come. And now we come to Mark 14, it's most likely Wednesday of that week. And as we've seen over and over in the Gospel of Mark, at this point there are some who are not impressed by Jesus. That's an understatement. They see him as a threat and they're plotting to kill him. There are others who know him but who aren't fully convinced that he's worth everything. And in our passage this morning, there's one woman in particular who sees him rightly and who responds in unhindered worship. My prayer for us this morning is that as we see her example and we see Jesus, we would recognize again his value, his worth, and that we would respond to him in unapologetic allegiance. If you have your Bibles open, let's read Mark chapter 14, look at verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for, for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go and do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's what we believe that every word is true and it's for our good. May God use his word for the good of his people this morning. Now, before we jump into the text, let me tell you how my week went. There's this kind of introduction, then there's a story about this woman who anoints Jesus, and then it moves into the betrayal. And I'm really looking forward to to teaching and walking us through the story about this woman, but what do I do with verses 1 and 2? Is this just setting? Is this just scene? Until I recognize, partly on my own and partly with the help of others, that this is, again, what we've seen several times in the Gospel of Mark. This is a a literary device that Mark uses where he takes two stories and he mashes them together to teach one story bigger message. Maybe you notice the transitions as we went through the text. Verses 1 and 2, we've got the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, we have Judas joining with the chief priests and the scribes to betray Jesus. And if you read verses 1, 2, 10, and 11, they're seamless. Yet Mark has gone, left chrono- left, that's a hard word, he's left the regular flow of time He's gone back to the Saturday before and taken an event and pulled it in and stuck it here. What we have, it's like a sandwich. These two pieces of bread that go together and then something else stuck in between. In the outer part, we have those plotting to kill Jesus and Judas joining in. And in the middle, a woman who sees Jesus rightly and loves him well. So we have a story of rejection and selfish ambition and a story of devotion and selfless sacrifice and they're intertwined on purpose we should look at them all together we should be grieved and warned by the outer story because we see people there who did not see jesus rightly and we should be inspired and encouraged to greater faithfulness by the inner story this woman who did see him rightly and did this incredible act of worship So we'll start on the outer ends and then we'll go to the middle. Verse one does give us some context. And if you've been with us, you remember that chapters 11, 12, and 13, this week leading up to the cross. It's Passover week and we see that. It's now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for some of you that may make a lot of sense and for others, not so much. Remember Passover, it's this annual feast held by the Jews in remembrance of the fact that way back, Jesus judged Egypt by killing the firstborn son of every household and freed Israel. He spared them through the blood painted over the door of a spotless lamb. He delivered his people from slavery. And so every year by the direction of God, the people of God celebrated this feast to remember the salvation of God when he brought them out of slavery. And then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're probably less familiar with this one, but over time, the two kind of get merged. It's like Christmas and New Year's. They all get lumped in together. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread remembers that as the people came out of Egypt, they, they took what they had. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, and so they ate the bread unleavened. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's, they repeated that. Eating unleavened bread and remembering the provision of God as he brought them out of slavery. Long story short, these are big days for the people of God this time, and it's a time when thousands upon thousands would make their way into Jerusalem, Jesus among them. And as Jesus comes, you have the chief priests and the scribes, and they're at a boiling point, ready to kill the Lord. And yet, there's a problem, there's lots of people around, many of whom have come from Galilee, they like Jesus, right? Right? He spent a lot of time there working lots of miracles. Many people have come into town who are very favorable of Christ. They want to kill him, but the problem is if we take out Jesus now, there could be a riot. No, this is a surprise. We've been building here. We have these leaders who have hated Jesus, hated his claims, hated the following he's amassed. And even though we've talked about this quite a bit, I just want to pause one one more time and just say how unbelievable this is that those who knew the scriptures presumably better than anyone who were looking for the promised one of God had him right in front of them and yet saw him as a threat and as someone who needed to be done away with. They were prepared and in just a few days would be successful in putting to death Christ. Christ. And yet, of course, we know that this was all by the sovereign hand of God. It was no coincidence that Christ died the week of Passover. That final, ultimate, sacrificial lamb, slain for the forgiveness of sins. Remember what we read in Acts, that God used those who acted by their own will to accomplish his sovereign plan of salvation for his people. This was God's plan of salvation for us, yet it should still grieve us to see those who knew so much and yet failed to recognize Christ. He came and stood among them and they didn't believe. We read in John, he came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. Not only did they not believe, but they hated him and had plans to kill him. And while that may be unbelievable that the religious leaders of the day hated Christ and wanted him dead, how much more surprising that we get this plot twist that you're not surprised by, most of you, because even if you don't know the Bible, you've heard the name Judas before, you know that's not a good thing. But imagine coming to the story for the first time, or even more so, living it. How surprising that one of the twelve One of those closest to Christ would be the one to finally betray him to death. Verses 10 and 11 again. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I don't think I read that earlier. I think I stopped early. Think about this. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the teaching. Not only the public teaching, but the private teaching of Christ. He had been up close with Christ. He had personally experienced the love and compassion shown from Christ to him. How could someone who had been so close and seen so much walk away? And not only walk away, but join efforts against Christ. Determined to betray him. What's clear is he saw other things as more valuable than Christ. Other things as more desirable than Christ. He wasn't a victim. The the verse tells us that he went to them. Judas went to the chief priest in order to betray Christ. And when he came, they were glad. This is exactly what we've been waiting for, this insider. To read this should grieve us. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe it's hard for you because Judas has always been the bad guy. Forget that for a minute. He looked like the other 11. A follower of Christ. A right-hand man. And yet his heart was selfish. Somehow, in some way, he didn't see or know the immeasurable worth of Christ. And when he saw something that appeared more valuable, he took it. It should be a warning to us, shouldn't it? That proximity to Christ isn't enough. That familiarity with Jesus is not enough. What we need is to truly recognize the worth and the value of Christ. Judas missed it. There were only 11 other people who had had this kind of closeness during these three years leading up to this event. He saw it all, he heard it all, and his heart wasn't changed. And instead, he saw another way to get something that would be good for him, and he took it. He sought an opportunity to betray him. Church, when we see the story of Judas, it should be a call for us to check our own hearts. There are several places in the New Testament that speak of those who seemed to have faith for a while. They were in the community of the people of God. They heard the scriptures. They knew the theology. Some of them even preached it. Yet a time came when they walked away proving that they were never truly his. They didn't truly value him or see his worth and saw the things as the world is more appealing. Friends, would you consider your own heart? What we see here is that for all his proximity and all his familiarity, Judas loved other things more than Christ. His love for himself and his own gain was greater than his love for Jesus. And we could stop there, and that should be enough to send us out trembling, And yet what Mark does here so beautifully is he gives us this picture of those who would betray Christ, the chief priests and scribes and Judas who joins them. And in between, he gives us this beautiful example of this woman. Judas is self-focused and sees other things as more valuable. She's willing to give it all for the sake of Christ. This woman knows his worth. Look at verse 3 again. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, the Gospel of John gives us a lot more information. I do think that John chapter 12 tells the same story that we have here. John 12 tells us this would happen on Saturday. So Mark isn't writing chronologically. Again, he goes back and pulls an event that happened in the previous weekend and inserts it here, which helps us see what he's doing. It's a flashback. It's a Saturday night. Jesus is at a dinner party hosted by Simon the leper. And he just says that like we should know who he is. Oh, is that Simon the leper. Nowhere else in Scripture do we know anything about this guy. You want to play a game? You want to think through it a little bit? Lepers don't host parties, right? People with COVID shouldn't host parties. Public service announcement. Lepers don't host parties. Yet he is, which means he's probably no longer a leper. And people didn't generally get back from leprosy. I think it's a safe assumption that this man was healed by Christ. John tells us that also at this party were Mary and Martha's sisters and their brother Lazarus. Remember that guy? He had died. He was in the grave and he stunk. And Jesus brought him back from the dead. This is a party with some people with some good stories. I had leprosy, I was an outcast, and Jesus healed me. Yeah, I'll one up you. I was dead, I stunk. And Jesus called me out of the grave. We've got Mary and Martha, faithful followers of Christ. Lazarus, Simon the leper, the disciples are there as well. And as they're gathered at the table, she comes up. Who? A woman, Mark tells us. John says it's Mary. Mark doesn't give her name, and I think that's significant. I think he wants to to show this unknown type person who's willing to give it all? She comes up, and she's carrying an expensive oil or perfume. The text says it's costly. Later on, we're told that it's worth 300 denarii. Don't translate it as $300. A denarii is worth, it's a a day's wage, Okay. 365 days in a year let's subtract 52 sabbaths what do we have about a year's wage she comes in carrying a container of perfume worth a year's wage so just do this you're really diligent you save a lot of money you save a whole year of your salary and you put it in a savings account you're glad you have that right a whole year's salary that's a lot more than ramsey says you need to have it's there. It's ready for you. But you empty out that bank account to go buy some perfume. How valuable is that perfume to you? This is no small item. And the fact that she has it probably tells us that she just didn't happen to acquire it. It's probably the resemblance of her savings. It could be a family heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation. Here is your safety net. If all else fails, you have this. We don't know for sure. Maybe she had them laying around. I think the text pushes us to see that this is precious and costly and irreplaceable for her. What does she do? We're told she breaks it and she anoints the head of Jesus. And right there, we have a cultural problem. We don't know anything about anointing. So things are already going sideways for us. Why would anyone pour perfume on someone's head at a dinner party? For them, this wasn't quite as odd. Anointing was common. When a new king would come in, his head would be anointed with oil as a sign of honor and respect. When a new priest was coming into the service of the priesthood, they would anoint their head with oil as a blessing. There are other examples of this anointing. So for them, that, that in itself wasn't necessarily strange. What makes it strange or to some unacceptable, is the price. This is far too expensive for this type of thing. So expensive that just even, if she just brought it in and sprinkled a few drops, touched his forehead with it, man, that'd be something. But what does she do? She breaks it open. She dumps it all. She broke the flask and poured it over his head, every bit of it. And I would submit that she was making a declaration. Jesus is worthy of incredible sacrifice. Jesus is worthy of incredible honor. Jesus is worthy of any shame or mocking that may come from this. And that happened. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Don't you think she probably knew? This may not go over well. What will I do if they label me a Jesus freak? They said this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. Again, Mark doesn't give us the names. Go to John. What we find out, it's probably the disciples and Judas leading the charge. They watched her walk into the room and they apparently knew exactly what it was worth. Maybe she showed it off first. As they stood watching, she did something they couldn't believe. She broke it, and in one moment she poured all that value, all that worth, on the head of Christ. And what was the response? They were mad. They were indignant. To them this was a careless and a wasteful choice. How could she take something of so much value... And waste it. Seems short-sighted. Think about what you could do with a year's salary. If you had it and you could use it however you wanted, what could you do with that? What good could you do? Mark says they were mad and they unleashed their anger on her. They scolded her. I can just imagine the things they were saying. If you don't need it, if you can give it away, at least do something worthwhile. Give it to the poor. You could have benefited so many people. Now it's gone. What a waste. What a fool. Seems like they're the bad guys. Or are they right? Put yourself in their shoes. Here's this lady. We, we all know she loves Jesus. And yet she takes something so costly and in seconds pours it out. Sure, it's an act of love, it's an act of worship, we all get that, but there's other oil that could have been used, other perfume that could have been poured. This, perhaps, seems over the top. Maybe a little too much. And I hate to say it, but being a practical, somewhat frugal person, I may have been with them. And maybe you would have too. After all, Jesus himself is the one who said we should care for the poor. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbors as yourself. Care for them. Provide for them. With that amount of money, she could have done so much and now it's gone. Maybe you and I would have been with them wagging our heads, wondering, we all love Jesus, Mary. We all love him. Why would you do that? Yet how does Jesus respond? Verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She made a mistake. No. He says she has done a beautiful thing. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. That verse can rub us the wrong way, but no honest reading of the New Testament can leave us thinking that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Jesus loved the poor, and he calls us, church, to care for them well. They'll always be among us. Some may progress from poor to not as poor, but there will always be the poor among us, and we are called to love them well. Make no mistake. What Jesus is doing here is not a statement about the lack of value or need. The problem isn't concern for the poor. The problem is their lack of recognition of the value of Christ. I mentioned a minute ago the second greatest commandment. Of all the commandments, Jesus says this one's number two. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love them well. There's only one commandment higher than that one. We saw it back in Mark 12. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus rebuked those who scolded her because he recognized this isn't about a lack of love for the poor. It's about an overwhelming love for her Savior. This woman saw Jesus and saw his worth and wanted to worship him and acknowledge him in a way that showed how valuable he is. She wanted to say, you are worthy of the most costly thing I have. She took this expensive possession and used it all. And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Which is not to say a gift to Jesus is always better than a gift to the poor. A gift to the poor, in a way, is a gift to Jesus. These things aren't mutually exclusive. What we're not told here is to, to give everything to the church and never feed our neighbor. The point here is a heart of devotion she made it clear that she loved Christ above all else and that he was worthy of unparalleled worship it was about her heart which is very similar to what we saw back in Mark um, chapter 12 remember the the widow who comes with the two coins and she puts it in and Jesus says that's the example Two dollars about forty thousand dollars? It's not about the amount. It's about the heart of worship and devotion. Jesus isn't seeking a large amount of money, he's seeking those who will worship him with hearts that are fully devoted. That only comes when we recognize Jesus rightly. Isn't that what we agreed that Judas missed? He didn't see the worth and value of Christ. And so he grabbed whatever he could get for himself. She saw the value and worth of Christ and so she gave. Extravagantly. And maybe that's all she thought she was doing. Yet Jesus sees it as something more. He sees it as something timely and prophetic. Verse 7. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. That's not a throwaway line. (laughs) Whenever we want, we can bless those around us. Read that positively. There are people around us for whom we can serve, right? Let's be faithful. They will always be with you, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, Jesus has been very upfront with his disciples, whether they heard it or understood it or not. He has been very clear that he was going to die. And he knows, even if they don't fully recognize it, it's coming very quickly, just days away. And he takes an opportunity to teach them. He says, I will not always be here. Time is short Another Jewish custom that you may or may not be familiar with is that when a a person would die, the family would go and they didn't embalm, but they would take the body and they would cover it with with oil and perfume and um, incense and things that would help. You can't can't cover that smell. They did things that would help. It was also a way of honoring the, the dead, anointing them and preparing their body. Here's what Jesus knows. He was going to die a criminal's death. Criminals don't get that privilege. They hang on the cross, and then they're disposed of. Jesus sees what she has done and is doing. And he says, she is anointing me for my burial. Symbolic, of course, but significant. And this is just speculation on my behalf, but I can only think Jesus, knowing what's happening and knowing what's coming, sat there, oil running from his head into his face, and he knew what was coming. His death was coming. His burial was coming. In that moment, some were seething with anger. Jesus was considering the sacrifice he was about to make, the cross, the shedding of blood, the wrath of God, the payment for sin. He was making himself ready for what was to come. Maybe you're here this morning, and I've said it a dozen times, that Jesus is worthy of everything, worthy of pouring out your most valuable resources. But why? Why would she do that and why 2,000 years later will we still be coming together and talking about it and saying, yes, he's worth it? Why? It's because of who Jesus is. Remember, we believe that Jesus was not just a religious teacher, he was not just a moral leader. Jesus was God, very God. God of God, light of light, who took on flesh, and lived among us. And then, he allowed himself to be taken and crucified. There were men who plotted to kill him and according to the sovereign plan of God they did. But this was a plan that God had made before the beginning of time. That he would come and die and through his death, a debt would be paid for the salvation of sinners, which we are. And the Bible tells us that because of our sin, we're separated from God. You cannot and you never have had a relationship with God except through Jesus. It's the only way. Because we deserve punishment for our sins, yet Jesus came and he died and God's wrath was poured out on him. And We're told that all who repent of their sins and believe in him will be saved reconciled, forgiven, brought into right relationship with God. We believe God died so that we could live forever. And this is why we believe that he's worthy of all of our praise and worship and devotion. And Mary had a sense of that even before it happened. He's worthy of everything. There's nothing that can match his worth. Mary saw it, and she made this incredible sacrifice as a sign of gratitude. And while others mocked her and said she was going too far in her devotion to Christ, Jesus defended her. He praised her. In fact, he said she's an example for generations to come. We see that in verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. The disciples mocked her for what she looked to them like an act of foolishness. Jesus praises her as an example that should be remembered for generations. He saw a woman with a pure heart. And he issues a prophecy. This is the picture. Giving everything in worship of me. And he says prophetically that wherever the gospel goes, wherever the message of Jesus goes, her story would go. Really? Well, here we are, right? 2,000 years later and the prophecy is being fulfilled yet again. The disciples thought she should be rebuked and Jesus said, no, remember her. An example of what it looks like to recognize the worth of Christ. An example of sacrificial worship and devotion. And consider again, church, the contrast. Judas, who by all accounts should have been the one saying, I'll give it all. The other 11 would. And here's this woman who had nothing to prove. Do you remember the legacy of Judas? We're actually gonna talk about it next week. Mark 14, 21. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. That's what Jesus says of Judas. Of this woman, he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Is it worth it to give everything? To risk the label? Jesus freak, Judas is a warning that we can be familiar with Jesus and in close fellowship with his followers and our hearts can be cold. Mary is an example that when we see Jesus rightly and we're willing to give it all, he is praised and God is honored. This passage I think is primarily about the worth of Jesus. It's also about how we respond. Maybe some of us are like the disciples in right standing with Jesus, in many ways, pleasing to him, and yet they had their boundaries, right? We've got to be practical about this. Don't move across the world. Your neighbors need the gospel. There's no sense to go all the way across the world to do it. We do this too, don't we? That's a little too extreme. Quitting your successful job or scaling back your hours so that you can give more time to the church, that's absurd. Make the money, You could think of all different examples of how people would say what you're doing doesn't make sense. Every week coming back here to this room that's not attractive at all to listen to a man who's even more so not attractive or eloquent or anything like that. Why? Because we believe it honors him and he's worth it. Why give a portion of the things that God has given you back to him? Why do we give offerings? Why do we make sacrifices? Because, church, he's worth it. He's worth it all. Following Jesus is worth every sacrifice we can make, and there is nothing in this life that compares to him. Nothing we can give that compares to his worth. This should be a call for us to evaluate our hearts. Do we believe he's worth it? Or do we play it safe and worry if we're too extreme? Perhaps we need the encouragement of DC Talk. I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth. Maybe that doesn't help you at all. Maybe the verse from the song we sang just a moment ago does. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all.